Okay, uh, this is what we want to do. Let me pray. I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself, um, why this topic is important, and why I enjoy teaching it. And then I'm going to ask you a few questions about the topic itself. We're going to dive in. Then hopefully at the end, maybe even have a few minutes for some questions. Okay, that's the goal. And hopefully we can meet that. Um, Pray with me. Father, we thank you for who you are, your goodness, grace, and mercy. And would ask even now in these moments ahead, you might use uh, your words, use me to communicate to these dear men, men who've come from far and close, but yet uh, there is a brotherhood that we have which is grounded in our relationship to Christ and then has also this sense of a foundation in uh, a true sense of understanding your word and wanting to hold fast to it. So bless this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Carl Hargrove's my name. A bit of my background. Let's see here. Saved at the University of Cincinnati some years ago where I was there playing football, and the Lord opened my eyes to see Jesus Christ as he truly is. Uh, graduated from there, went back to Orlando where I grew up, and uh, got connected in a church that I thought was a, a hospital, actually, when they were building it, First Baptist Orlando. Um, pray for First Baptist Orlando. It's not the place that it was. You say you just made a public statement about a church. I did um, because it was dear to my heart at one point in time, but now it is not on the straight and narrow. And that is even relevant to this topic today. Um, I was blessed by it. I see a dear brother that I knew there at that church um, was involved in evangelism and going out. You remember those days, Stu? Rich days, and even from this brother right here I had not seen in how many years has it been? 40 years, 40 years, uh, but taught me some things about evangelism. Um, I knew I was had a call to the ministry, but wasn't sure what I should do next. Um, the Lord in his good providence guided me, and I ended up at the Master's Seminary, um, got connected here at Grace Church, was sent out, ordained here, sent out, planted a church, uh, was there 13 years. I see a dear brother. Uh, right here was one of the elders with me at that church, and praise God, uh, they are still going strong, much, much strong, going strong, very, very strong, as a matter of fact. Um, and that's a blessing because I think I left there in 2006, six or seven, then went to a church that was a revitalization, seven years, so 20 years of senior pastor. Got a call and asked to come back to Grace Community Church. Uh, and then to work also at the seminary. I wasn't sure about that. I mean, this is a lovely place. Some people thought, wait a minute, what are you saying? John MacArthur called you and asked you to come back to Grace Church. Surely you're going. And actually says, no, not necessarily. What I need to do first is pray. And, and I did some fasting and prayer because I wanted to know what God's will was. And uh, I did come back in 2014. Can't believe how time has gone by. Um, I teach at the seminary and pastoral ministries. One of the pastors and elders I lead up a ministry called Grace Advance, where we help plant churches, revitalize them. Um, I pastor one of the fellowship groups here and recently been very, very involved in a ministry created myself and, and a colleague, and he's actually in the back here, Stephen Musley right there from South Africa, um, called ARC, the African Revitalization Center. So we travel there quite often, um, developing resources for pastors there, teaching and training. Uh, married and in June, 30 years. Wow, 30 years. And my, and my wife cut a deal when we were first married. She said to me, you're responsible for all the even years and what we do, and I'll do the odd. And I thought, wait a minute. So I have to do 10th, 20th, 30th, 40th, 50th. And really the only big deal that's odd is 25, right? And I think I still ended up planning and paying for that one. So, so a good negotiator, right? So 30 years, five kids, um, and like I was saying, the girls are the bookends, the oldest and the youngest, three sons in between, two of those Marine officers. And, um, you know, it's good to, to be proud uh, of your kids, right? And, um, and they all have different talents and abilities, and the oldest is out in New York in grad school, and those two, then two still at home, 
Uh, they're working right now, and we're practically empty nesters, so it's a blessing. My wife gets to go with me a lot in different places now. Now, this, oh, that's right. And my son that's in Lejeune married, and our first grandchild, little Jaden, and he's a bundle of joy and other things as well. Because <laughs> he's you know, like, wow, I'd, you talk about uh, convincing me of harmardiology. I'm totally convinced of harmardiology because how is it this little bundle of sin, as cute as can be, but don't have to teach him attitudes, you don't have to teach him selfishness, none of it. It's all right there. And so we've spoken to that from time to time. Uh, so the Lord is good, is he not? Amen. And uh, this topic, um, why is it important? Now, a resource that you'll be given, uh, I think, later in the conference, I'm not sure when, is a journal article, well, a set of articles that were written um, for the Master's Seminary Journal. And I wrote one, and it was essentially talking about the private life of the pastor-theologian, and its subtitle was How John MacArthur Has Encouraged Godliness in Pastor-Theologians. A very important topic. I think we all agree with that, do we not? And I would say that if you do not have your private life in order, your life is not in order. It is disorder. So we all need to strive for pastoral holiness. Uh, Absolutely, we must. So why is this topic important? Well, it's important because uh, the essential nature of this topic will have some effect on the impact of your ministry, um, the reach of that ministry, the effectiveness of that ministry. John MacArthur has said over time, you may have heard him say it before, truth and hand go hand in hand. And what he has meant by that is eventually the one's true life will be found out. It comes out. Uh, But I want to add a caveat to it. And the caveat is this. Sometimes, listen to me, sometimes time may lie. But heaven is always honest. Do you understand? So a person may live their life and you look at them and think, oh, that person was truly uh, on the straight and narrow. But then you find heaven has a different account of that person's life. They were actually living a life that was duplicitous, but we just never discovered it. Heaven's record is always correct. Do you agree with that? Because you can hide things from your peers. You can hide them from your elder board. You can hide them from your deacon. You can hide them from your wife. You can hide them from your family. But you cannot hide them from the living God. We all agree on that, do we not? And this is why your private life and your pastoral holiness is absolutely essential. Um, We live in an age where men are falling, um, and it is sad. Men are not living up to the standards that God has for them. And there are any number of topics um, that you can discover and and consider at this year's Shepherds Conference, and they're all good. Um, I would commend them to you all. And at some point in time, some of you probably have the habit of going back through and listening to those messages once you have time to do it. But I would propose this. Whatever theological topic you consider, whatever passage you consider, but if your life is not circumspect, if your life does not really uh, reflect what you believe, then it's all a sham. It is. You may have, and I've said this even to students here at the Master's Seminary, and some excellent exegetes, some seem to have a giftedness towards the language, some very clear theological mind um, can understand nuances of theology, can make clear arguments in theology. However, if your life is not reflecting the holiness of God, it is worthless. So what is the point of being a great exegete, but yet you're not living truly for the Lord? What is the point of you being a great homiletician? Uh, He is a great speaker. He can deal with the text thoroughly, but you're not living for the Lord. Pastoral holiness is absolutely essential. There is a need, brothers, and the need is this. And we can say it this way. Sadly, we can look around us and see the downfall of pastors because of what? Moral failure, theological compromise. It is ever increasing. And this is the time when church leaders are too often losing 
their spiritual moorings each day. And if we're talking about ministering to the remnant, you are part of a remnant in a different sense, men that are really striving to live for the Lord. And if we're going to minister to the remnant, those men, yourselves, being a part of those who are ministered to this remnant, your lives must be different. And you can rest assured that the enemy would do <clears throat> what laud in the ability to put stumbling blocks before you and for you to fall and for you to fail. We need, if we're going to minister to the remnant, we need a church that is strong. The only way that the church can be strong is that you have leaders who are strong and they're emanating from themselves some sense of Christ-likeness. Personal holiness is important. Your personal growth is important. And see, for us, if we're going to live a life of personal holiness, if we're going to live for the Lord, if we're going to be circumspect, I would say that the pastor theologian, which you all are, if you have a call to the Lord to minister in his church, you are in fact a pastor theologian, that one way that you can fight against the vials of the devil and the temptations of the world is nurturing a life of personal holiness. Living for the Lord in the area of integrity, that you will walk in integrity in your life. In the area of prayer, that you would be a man who would depend on the Lord and you would pray to him and you would realize that you need wisdom and insight and divine grace. And I would also say that you need to also have Godward contemplation. And what do I mean by that? That you have thoughts about God. Not just about your ministry schedule. Not just about the next test uh, task. Not just about what is it that I'm preaching, but you have thoughts about God. If you were to take your life and say, how can I be like I see so often, and perhaps I've communicated like the psalmist who would muse on God and think on God and meditate on God. If you're going to be a man of personal holiness, you must be a man of integrity, you must be a man of prayer, and you must be a man who thinks about God. Do you agree with me? Have I said anything at this point? You would say, well, Hargrove, I take issue with that. No, I don't think so. It was Alan Gibbs who said this, so important about, um, and I love the illustration, and, and I put it up here in full so we can look at it together. And he said this, a preacher occupies a far more prominent place in the public eye than those who take no part in preaching. Therefore, there exists the need for a correspondingly circumspect walk before men. Ephesians 5, 15 and 16. A pocket watch and a public clock both serve the same purpose, to tell the time. If a watch goes out of order, only the owner is affected. But if a public clock goes wrong, hundreds of people are misled. Thus, a prominent position carries with it a far greater necessity and responsibility for consistent life. This will involve merciless self-judgment, separation from all known sin, and, in some cases, denying the legitimate things of life, that the testimony of Christ and the ministry not be blamed. 1 Corinthians 6, 12, 2 Corinthians 6 and 3. Think about what Gibbs said, and the illustration is a beautiful one. I have my watch on right now, and if it's not synchronized properly, what can happen? I can be late, and that's Siri trying to tell me something right there. I can be late for something. Uh, my wife, uh, we, she, there's a difference in how we think about time. I'll just, I'll just put, I'll just put it that way. So, uh, all of her clocks are like, you know, the one, especially the one in the bathroom. It's like 12 minutes fast, because she's thinking, okay, that gives me some leeway, right? I'm sort of the opposite direction. Uh, on that, and I love her to death, but that's just where things are when it comes to clock. And there have been times when I'm looking and I say, Oh my goodness, I've got to go. I'm behind. And she says, Remember, it's on Joanna time. <laughs> right? It's on Joanna time. So if my clock is off, it's just me that's affected. But if the public clock that everyone is looking at is now off, then who's off? All that are gazing at it. And what Gibbs is saying is that you, as a man of God, in one sense, you are that public clock. 
and people are looking at you and they're saying, how does this man make decisions about his family and about his priorities and his passion? What is his level of integrity? How does he pray? How does he think about God? How does he order his life? How does he sacrifice? And so as they look at you and you're that public clock, they're saying, oh, that was a little fudgy what he said. Maybe it's okay. Oh, I don't seem really that passionate about the things of the Lord, but he is a great speaker. Oh, I kind of see how he operates with his wife. Then maybe I don't really need to be that loving husband that I'm called to be. You get the point, don't you? So it's important that we live this life before others. And in the midst of our studies, and it's good to study, and there's so many things that you can view here at Shepherd's Conference, and it's good to come to conferences, and I would say at least biblical conferences it is. It's good to participate in workshops and seminars to educate yourself. That's all well and fine. But the question is, does it move us in a certain direction? Am I more like Christ? Am I more like the Savior that I am serving? Gibbs also said this, and I like it. He says, it has been pointed out that there are two kinds of readers, those who go through a book and those who allow a book to go through them. Amen? Is that a good word? That's a good word. And here is the first book that needs to go through you. Are we all agreed? Does this book go through you? Does it go through you? Or is it all simply an academic exercise for you? And I've gone through the academics. I mean, I've walked across the podium here for the Master's Seminary three times. Three times. But I still must maintain a childlike perspective. And I must say, this is God's word. I believe every word of it. And let me read it because God said of his word, sanctify them in truth. Your word is what? It's truth. God said of his own word, what did he say about its word? It can cut what? Bone and marrow. It divides even that which is indivisible. So I need to be in God's word and read God's word. Even recently, I was seeking the Lord for wisdom. I needed insight. God, what, how do I handle this situation? And I have to go to God's word. And I even said, hey, pray for me. Uh, and kind of social media account, I said, pray for me. I'm about to go down Periscope and I'll come up again. And I did. I went down Periscope, and I started in Luke, and I finished in Luke 24. So about three and a half hours later, I had wisdom and insight. I had a perspective on Christ. I saw words that I had not noticed before, because when you read like that, you, you get the context of things. I saw this word. I didn't realize how many times amaze or amazing came up in Luke's gospel. And I didn't stop to you know, oh boy, let me parse this. Let me think about this. I didn't do that. It was just reading, 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 reading. Let the word of God go through you. If you're going to be a man of personal holiness, then we have to believe what the psalmist said. What did he say about the words of God? Uh, they are like a, the man of God who meditates in them should be like a what? Like a tree planted by streams of water. And those streams of water bring nutrients to your soul. There is an area I grew up in Florida, in Orlando, Florida. And there is an area where they call it's the Indian River. And there's Indian River fruit. And the Indian River fruit is pretty famous because uh, where it's located, uh, th- these natural nutrients are there by the river itself. And so whatever, however God has orchestrated it, that these nutrients come and the fruit is just really, really good. And you pay a price for it, too. <laughs> you pay a price for it. And that's an image that says you need to locate yourself by these streams of water. And let God's word have its effect in your life. Take in large doses of God's word. Meditate on it. Think about it. Consider Christ in who he is. So we have to understand these things properly. Okay, I'm going to turn this off. That's like series. That's her second time, you know, telling me she 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 thought I wanted something. She's trying to tell me something, so I just shut it off. 
Yeah, no, she's one warning. No three-strike rules here. No, one and you're out. Um, consider this by Lee and Griffin, and they made the statement that moral and doctrinal rectitude are the inseparable twins of the Christian life. Inseparable twins. And I mentioned they have twin boys, and someone, one of their former professors, uh, they just uh, ran into me and they said, I could never tell them apart, although they were in class. I said, well... Um, yeah, we knew them apart because we saw them from the very beginning. But there, there were occasions I'd say, Jordan, okay, got you. Um, and they were inseparable. I mean, they, they did everything together, sports together. They went to the university together. They had the same major together. And do you know they got the same GPA within a hundredth of a point? Same GPA, right? Unbelievable. Then they both decide... You know, they had been growing up, going to be in the military. And then one, the younger one said, instead of going the Airborne Ranger Army route, we're going to go Marines because he said, I think it's tougher. So, of course, the other one says, hey, if you think it's tough, I want tough. I'm going to do it too. And they both did it. And they both went through office because candidate school together. And then they both decided we're going to go for um, infantry school. And he said, but, Dad, only 50% of the men make it through, so at least one of us will make it. I says, No. Oh, no, I don't think so, buddy. Both of you are going to make it. I don't know, Dad. So 101 men came in, and 49 made it through, and they both made it through. They did it together, and they were pushing one another. No, Joseph. No, J- Jordan. Let's get it done. Inseparable. And now they're on the other side of the world. One is in Japan, and, and the other is in North Carolina. Your doctrine and your life are what? What did Paul say? Look out for your, your life and your doctrine. Your doctrine and your life. They're inseparable. Now, we, this first session, um, Steve Lawson talked about, obviously, a, a great, glorious passage, election. Uh, in the end, we should be humble people in light of it wonderful doctrine that's communicated and we believe those things with all of our heart but if your life is not circumspect you really give an account that you don't really believe the things that you say you do I'm uh, yes of course I believe in the doctrines of grace absolutely I believe in divine election absolutely I believe in inseparable um, operations absolutely I believe these things we say Prayer? I'm too busy reading Sharnock. Why should I pray? What? Contemplation of God? No, my schedule is entirely too busy doing the things of God. Oh, there's a contradiction there. Don't you think so, brothers? And this is also why Hendrickson said, holy living and sound teaching must go together. If Timothy, or for that matter, any apostolic representative, any minister, any elder, etc., is to be a blessing. See, what Hendrickson is getting at now in his commentary on Timothy, he's saying, if you want to be a blessing to your people, if you want to minister to the remnant, be a man of holiness. People need guidance. They need direction. And in part, why are we saying even there is a remnant? We're saying there's a remnant because the vast majority are astray. They are astray morally, and they are astray doctrinally. So what is it going to take? You brothers have a responsibility, and it's a tremendous responsibility. Nonetheless, it is one you're fully capable of fulfilling because of the grace of God and God's call in your life is to be a mooring, if you will, for the church. People need an example, and you are that example. This is what God has called you to. They're absolutely inseparable. Scripture has that expectation of you. You remember Jeremiah 1, Jeremiah 1, 5, and just notice if we were reminded of the calling of Jeremiah. Just turn there with me. Jeremiah 1. And what does it communicate clearly? He says, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. 
a prophet to the nations. Notice consecrated, you set apart. You've been set apart for a specific purpose. Notice verse 10. See, I've appointed you this day over the nations and over kingdoms, he says, to pluck up and to break down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Your words will be harsh words, but they will be my words. What is happening today in the church? Men don't want to speak God's words. They want to compromise, do they not? And they think that somehow, if I can communicate messages that are more palatable, then I, the church will grow. It may. As a, as a matter of fact, in many cases, it will. But then, what will you, who will you have in your pews? Someone tell me. Who do you think will be in your pews? You can say it out loud. Tears. Full of tears. Full of tears. Because you're not speaking for the Lord. So you speak for the Lord and then you live for the Lord so they can see this man is different. His message has affected his very soul. So we must walk in integrity. Absolutely going together. You know, John MacArthur in his years of ministry and um, actually it's been 65 years of ministry because it began when he first preached his first sermon at 18, at 18, 65 years, he's been at this. And I know it's breaking his heart that he couldn't be here for the opening session of Shepherd's Conference. And you have seen at Grace Community Church this an obvious, and we'll call it an obvious sort of effluence of, of the grace of God in this ministry and respective ministries that's now worldwide training thousands upon thousands of men and women that they would fight the good fight, that they would speak for the Lord Jesus Christ. Why is it that you have 4,500 men that are here gathered together? I want to learn more about this good fight. I want to be encouraged in the fight itself. I want to be reminded that I'm not alone. You may be a part of a remnant, and that remnant is in fact small, and we perhaps may be able to say that it will become smaller over time, but nonetheless, God has called us to be faithful, has he not? And we must remain faithful. And then you come together in occasions like this, and you can look around, and you see brothers who are fighting the good fight as well, and you can be encouraged to continue to fight the good fight, to finish your course. My When I first knew I was called a minister at the University of Cincinnati, and I just wasn't sure what to do next. And I never forget going to talking to my, my aunt, my mom's younger sister, um, and talking with her. And she said to me, she said, Carl, it was just plain words. Isn't it amazing how sometimes people that don't have a great deal of theological education, you know, they don't have... Uh, a hundred, two hundred, three hundred, a thousand volumes of Christian works, but they knew Christianity. Have you ever noticed that? And she says, Carl, she said, um, and I'll never forget those words. I mean, I'm right out of college. She says, there are many preachers who start well, but they don't finish well. She said, Carl, make sure that you finish well. Make sure that you finish well. It's all about the finish. You've seen it in sporting events, right? The team has the lead, and all of a sudden they lit up. What happened? They didn't finish well. Someone starts off morally, and they're a bright, shining star, but they don't finish well. Someone begins, and they're preaching the word of God with all of their heart and with all of their might, and they're uncompromising, but they don't finish well. No one cares that you had the lead at the third quarter, but you lost the game. Do they give out awards for that? Do they give out halftime? It's a soccer match. We were leading two to one at half. Yes, and? <laughs> you know, well, society today, they probably do have something like that. <laughs> so let me, like, retract that. Because in my mind, you know what, I just thought, you know what, now they give out these participation trophies, Right? And my kids, they wanted to give those to my kids. Said, you will not accept that garbage. You lost. Feel what it's like to lose. Do you understand? No one wants to lose. Don't know. No participation trophies for my kids. No, you almost won the race, but the person came back at the last second and beat you. No, okay, what kind of trophy is that? 
I almost won the race, but in the last five yards, I lost. Then some preachers, I preached faithfully for 40 years, but the last two, I fell off. Mm. I was morally pure for decades. Then pornography got me. I was serving the people of God faithfully, but my pride got to me. I can look back at my picture of my wife and that dear woman that I said I would love for the rest of my life, but then she just seemed to be more compatible. Hmm. Serious business, isn't it? And here's the other thing. You say, wait a minute. Is a message like this necessary for men that are at the Shepherds Conference? What, what is your response to me? Is it, is, it, is it or is it not? So where are the yeas? Is it? Yes. Yes. It is. Because this is what can happen with men. You get lulled to sleep because you think you may believe the, the right things intellectually, but it is not taking root in your soul. Who cares at the end of your life if you have the volumes of Bavink? Who cares if you have understood Owen and you have read through all of them? Who cares if you can articulate all the tenets of a Reformed doctrine, but yet you don't finish well? It's about the finish. It's inseparable. Absolutely necessary. So we see it in a man's life in John MacArthur that it's finishing well. But we also have to say he's not done. You should still pray for him. Say, well, no, he's not. Surely he could not. Don't be a fool. He could. You can. If you don't watch your life and your doctrine. See, there's a sanctifying effect that the word of God has on us when we study And if you were to talk to John MacArthur, you would hear him. He would say one reason that he has almost this insatiable desire to learn more is the sanctifying effect that it has on his soul. That's one of the joys of teaching, isn't it? I mean, you go to discover something and you get into the word of God and you study it and you just see how these thoughts about God and you see God's precision in his word and your soul is benefited from that. I was sharing with some students recently, even as I am in my fellowship group teaching through Isaiah 40 to 48, and I truly believe every time I open up the portion of Scripture, this is too much for me. I was, adjust, I was just addressing the issue of um, it'd be 44, um, 23, all the way to 45, 25, and the idea that now Cyrus is introduced Cyrus is now God's servant. Cyrus is his anointed. And now the realization that God in his sovereign hand, I'm going to raise up this great Cyrus. He's going to deliver you. I'm the one that will fight against these nations. He is going to loose, it says, the loins of kings, which means he's going to embarrass them so much. But he says repeatedly, I will, I will, I will, I will. So that all men will know from the rising of the sun into its setting, that I am God. So when I work through Cyrus, and remember, when the people of God are reading what Isaiah has communicated, there is no Cyrus. When they're reading what God has communicated, there is no great Persian empire. But he says, but I am the one who created the heavens and the earth. And I will raise up a Cyrus, and he will bring you out of exile. I mean, you read things like this, and it's too much for you. Who am I? Um, gospel proclamation is absolutely needed. It can't be separated from the character of the proclaimer. Um, the greatest thing that we need to think about in life is a person, they come to a saving knowledge and a sanctifying knowledge of Christ. And if you're guiding people, that means that there is no blessing that has an equal to bring people to a saving knowledge of Christ and then for his people to guide them in sanctification. It is a great blessing. And we need to see it as such. Do you not agree with that? 
What a privilege you have. A former sinner, but now you can bring people to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, the pastor theologian is the watch that your congregants, your pastoral mentors, your, your peers use as a spiritual compass in their life when they make decisions. This is why 1 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore I exhort you to be what? Imitators of me. 11.1, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And Paul said what um, to the church at Philippi? We have this example. We have this standard. Observe it in us and follow us. What a tremendous responsibility that you have. Uh, how many of you are parents in the room? How many of you are parents? All right, great. Uh, what is some of the memories you have? A lot of sweet memories as a parent, right? Uh, and it's just amazing some of the things you can think about. I think about, you know, even going back to my twin boys. I remember the first time I noticed um, one of them, he was coming out of the kitchen. I'll never forget it. And I looked at him and said, hold on a second. Come here. And I put him next to me and we stood in the mirror. And you know what had happened? He was the same height as I was. And this was at 13. I said, boy, we're feeding you too much. <laughs> and in his mind, you're not feeding me enough, right? <laughs> and you, you grow up and, and you have these great memories of them, and they see you as larger than life, don't they? And even this, it seems to be, I don't know, all kids want to do it. They want to walk in their dad's shoes, especially boys. And, you know, I've, since uh, I've been their dad, I've had a size 13. So can you imagine that? Putting their little feet in my shoes. And now I can wear my son's shoes. And he has some nice shoes. <laughs> so I'm like, hey, it's payback time. <laughs> Let me borrow those. He says, okay, Dad. <laughs> then he'll say, don't get too used to them, no. <laughs> hey, there's a benefit to this now. I appreciate that. But there's that sense in which you're larger than life. They want to be like you. They want to follow you. They at times want to dress like you. It's a sweet thing. Oh, but my brothers, we have a heavenly father. Hmm. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Yeah, you have a savior who was a warrior. You have a savior who was gentle, a savior who was humble, a savior who was merciful, a savior who sacrificed, a savior who emanated from himself Love that we cannot even fully comprehend this side of heaven. Follow him. Follow Christ. So the Lord has called us to these things. Go with me to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1. We need divine grace if we're going to walk in such a way. Notice what he says in verse 28. Um, he says, For we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom, so that we may present every man complete in Christ. We, this is a part of our labor, is it not? But then notice what he says in 29. For this purpose, this purpose of laboring for Christ, that people would be mature in Christ, I also labor striving according to the power which mightily works within me. And what's so beautiful about this verse, if you look at it, and you see it in the, the original language, the words that he's using are very pronounced, throughout very pronounced. So he says, um, I'm laboring, uh, and this word for laboring is this idea, it could mean even beating and slapping. It comes from a weariness of the work itself. You've been struck. And then he says, I'm laboring and I'm also agonizing. You've heard that before. The agonizomai. I'm agonizing in the work itself. But I do it because of the energy that I have. And not only does he say it again, another form of energy because of his great might, his great dunamis, he says. So I'm, I'm laboring, I'm agonizing. It's by his energy, his energy, his might. Why is that important in Colossians 1.29? Because in the work itself, the work itself is hard, is it not? If you're not involved in a work that is hard, you're not involved in the work. You're just not. I'm not sure what you're doing, but you're not involved in Christian work. You're not. If, if you come to somebody and they say, oh, the work, 
boy, it's just wonderful. It's coming along. That could be true. And hopefully it is true. But nonetheless, it's hard. People break your heart, don't they? They're long hours in the work. At times, maybe you're not appreciated in the work. You have enemies in the work. And you may be in an environment where you're somewhat alone because you don't have brothers like this every day around you and encouraging you. The work is hard. But God's grace is sufficient. Amen? His power. His energy. His dunamis. I can agonize in the work. I can strive in the work because of his grace in my life. And there are times in life where I'm, I'm tired. I mean, I'm exhausted. But I'm never tired of the work. Tired in the work, but never tired of it. Can we agree with that? Amen. I would never do anything else. I would never do anything else. I mean, the privileges that I have to go to places that I do, to preach the word of God, to train men, to help men get resources that they may not normally have, to care for people. To, even the other day, I was on a, a Zoom call with someone and a, a couple. They're, you know, they're, they're troubled in their marriage, and, and I've known them for many years. And, and, I, and I even told them, I said, you're breaking my heart. You are. You're breaking my heart. And they looked at me almost like in that childlike perspective. He says, yeah, we know, Pastor Carl, we know. The work is hard, but his grace is sufficient. So how do we avail ourselves of this grace? That has to do with your private life. Are you going to be a man of prayer? A man that thinks about God, that meditates on God. So in the midst of this battle, and we all are in a battle, we all agree on that. This is warfare. You need to take in God's rations for you as you're in this battle. So consider this. Paul can only agonize in the work of, of the faith as he does what? Avails himself of the divine energy and power of the Savior's grace. Um, prayerless preachers are preachers who do not believe in God's grace. You should like take that, you know, um, when we, we have our, our five solos, do we not? And I'm not sure, they don't, well, they can still hear me. That's all that matters. Um, and obviously one is we believe in grace alone. Do we not? Do we all adhere to that? Absolutely. We believe in grace alone, but yet we don't pray. It's almost like for a moment you, you want to reverse the, Re- the Reformation. Let's become a Roman Catholic. And let's depend on self and our own energies. No. It is you must depend on the grace of God. And the way that you can avail yourself of the grace of God is to go before the living God and have a childlike perspective that says, God, I come to the throne of grace with boldness, and I can come with boldness because the sufficient work of Jesus Christ satisfies the the Father so much so that I can come with a sense of boldness and I can receive what in help in time of need? What will you receive? Grace. Grace in time of need. Prayerless preachers, uh, I'll be so bold to make this statement. Prayerless preachers are preachers who truly are not reformed preachers. You're not a reformed preacher. Stop the madness. Stop at this very moment. You're self-deceived. Stop it. Stop quoting reformers. Stop quoting Puritans until you get that area of your life corrected. And this is why even Calvin, Calvin himself, great theological mind, obviously. We appreciate Calvin, don't we? I appreciate Calvin. Absolutely, I do. Um, you read through Calvin's institutes, and you see these lofty thoughts about God. You, obviously, the this, this sense of foreordination, predestination, divine enablement. But if you look through the institutes, what you will find this. You will find this, the largest chapter in the institutes have to do with prayer. He was a praying man. And this is also why Calvin said that the greatest way that we can show our love for our fellow man is to pray for them. He said, if you love your flock, you pray for your flock. If you love your family, you pray for your family. 
If you love your brothers in the faith, then you pray for your brothers in the faith. Now, Paul has already communicated, and we've already considered it. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. And what did Christ do in his earthly ministry? It says he would go out alone, and he would go out often. And what would he do? Pray. And somehow we think that uh, we are going to outdo the Lord Jesus Christ. Utterly ridiculous. You cannot be a man of God, a, a man that's striving for personal holiness, and you don't feet, sit at the feet of the Lord and have sweet communion with God. No one has a good marriage that never talks. Have you ever seen that couple at the restaurant? They don't say a word to one another. About the only time they talk is when they say, okay, do you want the steak or do you want it medium? The guy gets the order, he tells the waitress, and that's about it. And you look over and say, wow, I wonder what's wrong. Something's wrong in that relationship. And nowadays, what, is, what, what do people generally have out when they're together? <laughs> they're fiddling to see who's like their latest picture on Facebook. You can't have a good relationship and not have communication. This is why you have to be a man of prayer. You have to labor before the Lord. And here's the thing about it as a pastor, pastoral holiness, your private life, it is this when it comes to prayer. Notice what the writer of Hebrews says. You can come to the throne of grace to receive help in time of need. Here's the reality. Sometimes your flock, they don't know how best to get to that throne. They're struggling themselves in prayer. Grace is readily available for them, but they're not availing themselves of it. So what you must do as the pastor, you must take them there. Okay? You understand? I say, for instance, if it comes to um, someone that doesn't know how to get around campus, and you say, brother, come with me. I'll take you. Then what do you do? You take them to that place, and you leave them there. Okay, good. That's where you wanted to go. You wanted to go to the C-130 building. Let me take you to the C-130 building, and you leave them there because they didn't know. They kind of knew it, had, it was somewhere over there. And prayer can be that way. What you're doing with your people and your family and your friends is that you're taking them to the throne of grace, and you're saying, God, will you intervene in their lives? And you leave them at the throne of grace because once they're there, your business is done. Amen? You can't contribute to that. But you can take them there by way of intercessory prayer. The man of God is an interceder. And he bears his own soul before the Lord as well. MacArthur has made some comments on 1 Corinthians chapter 6. of a few minutes here. And if you look at 1 Corinthians, I'm sorry, 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6. Six through sixteen, some highlights. Godliness is great gain. Realize verse seven. Don't put so much in this world because you will never take it out. And this is why MacArthur, when he wrote about the man of God in his pamphlet, he started off with that timeless um, comment from McShane. And what did McShane say? And let's look at it together. Remember, you are God's sword, His instrument. I trust a chosen vessel unto him to bear his name in great measure according to the purity and perfections of the instrument will be the success. It is not great talents God blesses so much as great likeness to Jesus. A holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. So the question I I, I propose to you uh, this afternoon, brothers, uh, do you believe that we're at war, yea or nay? We're at war. Do we not know that? Now, you're at war because the world has always been at war with us, has it not? Jesus Christ said you should be prepared for this. They, in fact, will hate you. But sadly, what is happening as well is that we find ourselves also there's infighting. There's something that's called friendly fire. But sometimes it's not too friendly, is it? You're at war. And the question is, being at war... What sort of instrument do you want to be? 
Now, should we educate ourselves? Absolutely. Should we, must we continue to educate ourselves? Absolutely we should. We must. But then the question is, will I sit at the feet of Christ and pray? Will I have thoughts about God? Will I allow God to get hold of my life? Will I develop habits that are repeatable habits that become a lifestyle? Will I put away from me things that don't matter in life? Will I order my life differently? Will people see of me, there is a man that loves the Lord. And this is what we want people to see in us, someone that loves the Lord. Will you be a lover of God? There have been times I've said to students and just to other ministers as well, just other men. The type of person you don't want to be, and, and I do love when we can reference good theologians of time past or even those that are present. But there have been times when I've listened to men and heard them, and I've said to them very directly, friend, I've not heard you mention Christ once. I've heard you mention just about every significant reformer in our conversations over the last year or so. Excellent quotes from Puritans. But I've not heard you talk about the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a danger. That's a danger to your soul. That's a danger to the soul of those that are under your care. Listen to yourself and perhaps have others listen to you And then ask you, do you hear in me that I love Christ? Or do you hear in me that I love doctrinal nuances? Should we like, should we strive for doctrinal clarity? What do you say? Yes. (laughs) But before that, strive for Christ. And that will bring about doctrinal clarity. But that cannot be almost like with some, it's almost like a fetish. No, these texts are clear. So he says you can't take it out of the world. If you have food and covering, you'll be content. So contentment is a part of godliness in verse 8. Um, the love of money is the root of all evil. Uh, these worthless and wicked men that uh, espouse you know, the prosperity perversion, God will address them in due time. Then he says, flee from these things, you man of God. But also, what must you pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. This is a part of our godliness that we fight this good fight, but we also be known as men of love and perseverance and gentleness. I was just teaching recently in 2 Timothy 2, 24-26, and Paul there talks about to Timothy, you know, be gentle, kind to all, patient when wrong, and the idea for kindness, a beautiful word, and it was Ellicott that said of, of kindness, it means a sweetness of disposition. Sometimes uh, men are saying, wait a minute, sweetness of disposition? I don't want that. I'm a fighter. I'm a warrior. Give me a weapon. Well, your greatest weapon may be your kindness, may be your gentleness, may be your patience. If Christ was kind, surely we can be what? If he was gentle, surely we can be what? (laughs) And oh my, was he patient with us all. (laughs) Then we can be patient. Absolutely necessary. John MacArthur said this, commenting on 1 Corinthians 6. He says, if a pastor wants to live a life worthy of doxology, a life that he can lift up before God to bring him honor, then he must follow the instruction and this portion of scripture, a doxology, that people can say at the end of a life, he lived well. And that's what we want. Let me, can I take a moment, and I'm maybe going to say something that maybe is different than what you perhaps have heard, or maybe you agree with me, maybe you disagree. If you disagree, we can talk afterwards. That's fine. We hear a lot about legacy, leaving a legacy. And some would say, I don't want to leave a legacy uh, and I think they have misquoted. And when they say, well, um, live, um, die, be forgotten, 
in context uh, what was communicated there in the life of a missionary. Be prepared that as you go in the life of a missionary that people may forget about you. They may. But we make it as if, uh, I think it's a false piety, honestly, that we say, I don't, you know, it doesn't matter to me. I don't want anybody to remember me. Uh, That's not true. First of all, you'll probably have a memorial service, right? And you're probably not going to have an unnamed tomb. So let's, let's stop this. Um, you do want to be remembered, but the question is, remember it for what? I mentioned, you know, my five kids and, and my first grandchild. I'm hoping that there are going to be others that will come, right? I want my children to remember me. But I want them to say, he loved God. You should want your congregants to remember me, to remember you. If you die, my pastor loved the Lord. Your fellow colleagues to remember you and say, that man, he held fast until the very end. He was a man of prayer. He was a man of integrity. He was a man who had thoughts of God. He meditated on God. And I saw it in his life. He was rigorous and absolutely committed it reflected in a life of godliness and personal holiness. A legacy. And we aren't talking about a secular legacy, but a spiritual one. And I think it's reasonable, and in one sense, even perhaps what we should strive for, to say, I want to be remembered, but be remembered as a man of God. Let me, um, some closing thoughts. Let's see here. Preachers always have to edit, don't we? Turn with me to Psalm 34. Psalm 34. What does it say here? Beautiful verse. Verse 8. Let me say this to you. Oh, unbelievable. I didn't even get, I can't even believe I didn't even get to Psalm 27 or Proverbs 4. Forgive me. You can, you can read it. You can read it in the article. Psalm 34, 8. Um, o taste and see that the Lord is what? Good. How blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him, there is no want. A life of personal holiness is a life that tastes God. And you see that he's good. Let me say this. Do you know, the? let me put it this way, the key to fighting temptation, if I were to ask you, what is the key to fighting temptation? I do want to finish well. I want to finish my course. I want to be a man of holiness. But temptation is all around me. It is. Here's the reality. Some will say, well, the key to fighting temptation is accountability. You need to have accountability, be in a pastor's group, that sort of thing. Um, put things on your phone or your, your, your iPad or your laptop. Um, make sure that you have open communication with your wife, your elders, your deacons. All necessary things, I think. Here's the key to fighting temptation. It's right there in verse 8. Here's the one word, satisfaction. So when you have satisfaction in God, then if you taste it of the Lord... You don't want any other meal. And that's, that's personal holiness. I've tasted of God. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. So my spiritual palate is satisfied in the living God. Why would I want to eat pornography? I've been satisfied with the Lord. Um, why do I want to eat, taste, and even come close to adultery? I've been satisfied with God and this great God who has given his very life for my soul, a soul that was absolutely undeserving, and I've tasted on him. Why would I compromise these convictions so that perhaps my numbers may change in my church? No, I will not. When you've had an excellent meal, it is, <laughs> it's satisfying. I went to a restaurant yesterday, and I, I had just gone there, and I, there's a certain thing that I ordered. And I said, you know, eventually I'm going to try everything else, but I'm just, <laughs> it's so good. And then she said, you're going to try it again? I said, yes, I'm going to try it again. And guess what? It was good again. 
And I may go back next week and I'll probably order the same thing. I don't know if I'm ready to venture out yet. Maybe I'll have to go with my wife and sometimes when we do, we split the plate. You know what I mean? Then I'll try it and I'll probably still say, oh, mine is better. <laughs> I'm, good. I'm, I'm, I'm done with sharing right now. <laughs> yeah. Taste the Lord, brothers. What is pastoral holiness? Tasting God. What is pastoral holiness? It means that if you've tasted God, that you will walk in integrity, regardless of what it may cost you. If you tasted God, then you will be a man of prayer because you know when you pray, it's an experience that you have with the living God. And when you pray, you realize that the only way that I can come before the living God is because a sufficient and glorious Savior has given his life that I can come before the throne of grace in time of need. And as a matter of fact, it says I can come boldly. That has nothing to do with me. It has everything to do with Jesus Christ. Amen. Because that's the whole point of the book of Hebrews anyway, is to say Christ is absolutely sufficient. Then I would not pray. And Christ has given his dear life that I can come with boldness before him and I would not pray. I mean, how many of you, you're married, you have kids, you have loved ones. If that loved one had sacrificed something for you that you would have access to it, and then you would say, ah, I'll, I'll come. You would say, what a, how disrespectful that is. And you would not have thoughts of God and meditate on God and think about God and muse on God, even as the psalmist did in his bed. When you go about in your life, you would not open these words of life and just read them and allow them to have an impact on your soul. Because you say to yourself, oh, my, my schedule. You would not be like the psalmist in Psalm 27 and 4. And he says, this one thing I've asked of the Lord. He said, I want to contemplate him in the temple. And he says, to behold the beauty of God. What is it that you're striving for, brothers? I want to encourage you in your pastoral holiness so that you can be an example for others in this remnant that is sorely, sorely in need of examples. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for these words you've given us. Pray that you would use them for the honor of your name. Help us to be men of holiness. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Amen.